Hey there, everyone. From beautiful Fort Collins, Colorado, halfway between Cheyenne and Denver, and 5,003 feet above sea level, I'm Jeff Haber, and you're listening to No Bed of Roses. No Bed of Roses is brought to you by Conexus. Maybe your company is creating video content or you're a brand looking for that coveted direct connection with viewers. Maybe you're an established YouTube creator or you're just starting out. Conexus Interactive Web Video Solutions enables viewers while watching your videos to simply tap on the items they're interested in, directly connecting them to the merchant's shopping cart to easily purchase those items. This all happens without ever leaving the video experience and without ever leaving the site where they started watching the video in the first place. Connexus shoppable video content works using any browser on any device. No download, no plugin, nothing to install. Interactive video like you've always wanted it. Find out more at connexus.com. That's K-E-N-X-U-S dot com. Welcome back, everyone. What's the journey one takes to found, open, and manage an experiential music treasure trove that's a 68,000-square-foot museum and hall of fame? a project that serves as a multi-generational archive, immersive and interactive, connecting fans with the men and women responsible for the music that's come to define our lives. Do you need to be a billionaire like Paul Allen, who opened what was originally called the Experience Music Project in Seattle? Or might you be from more humble beginnings, actually having worked as a musician and songwriter, someone who has music and the music business in their DNA. Joe Chambers is here to share with us a little about his journey to becoming the founder of the Musicians Hall of Fame and Museum in Nashville. It's a pretty cool place. Here's Joe. I'm from, I'm from the deep south, Columbus, Georgia. I was born in 54. It was easy for me to keep up with music in what grade I was in because 1960, 61, I was in first grade. So all through the 60s, 61, 62, all through the, you know, every year, 61, first grade, 62, second grade, you know, 65, 66, you know, my dad gave me a transistor radio. That was not conducive to my education because I would run the the little earplug up my sleeve and I was listening to the Beatles and the zombies and the Beach Boys in class, you know, and instead of uh, math. And and when I went to the playground, I'd find a good spot out there, and especially when the weather was conducive, and and just listen to, to because you know. Uh, and I've, again, I've said this before. Anybody's ever heard me say it? I apologize for saying it again, but it really kind of is the best definition of what I can I can think of to explain what I'm feel. I heard, I think it was Michael Jordan, say that he was in the moment, you know, during like in a playoff game. And he was going up for like a, late, a layup, you know. And and during that, when he's trying to sink this 
basket, you know. He's thinking to himself, at the same time he's in the middle of trying to make this score, remember this, because you, this is this is special, you know. I was not able to articulate it in my little 10-year-old mind, but in the 64, it was a 10-year-old or 65, um, and I felt instinctively that the music that we were listening to was better than anything that I think came before. Um, it was my refuge. You know, I was a little bit of a loner, even even though I had a radio with me at school. I couldn't wait to get home and turn on uh, the radio and listen to, to and, and the DJs were big stars, even in local communities, you know. The, and I miss that, too, because um, not only were they celebrities in their local communities, but they were very valuable to the artists and the record labels because a lot of times, you know, not everybody that's in a position of power in a record label should be there. And they miss a lot of things. And and uh, luckily, you've got a DJ that's listening to and knows music, knows what a hit is, will take a B-side or an album cut and go, oh, wait a minute, that should be the single, <laughs> you know. And they turned, they they made a lot of hits that were would have been not heard had it been left up to to those in charge. So, Can you think, Joe, of a specific example of that, of a DJ taking a B-side and saying, hey, guys, this is the hit? I, I'll just say the ones that I know for a fact. The number one song in 1966 was Almost Persuaded by David Houston. It was the B-side. In Atlanta, a uh, DJ started playing it, and it flipped, and it, and it sold thousands of records, and you know, that's just how it happened. Uh, Swingin' by John Anderson, 19, number one song of 1984. DJ started playing it off the album, and the record label had to ask them to please stop so they could finish out the single they'd put out. They promised, look, we'll release it next, just don't. It used to be a record had to, to peak pretty much the same time, whether it's in LA, New York, Dallas, Atlanta, if they peak weeks or days apart, the way they had it set up on the uh, billboard or whatever the re- the reporting stations were, it could be it could go number one in every single market. But if it didn't go to number one at the same time, then it wouldn't show up as a national number one hit. You know, it could it could show it was number two, number three, even though it was number one in every major market. So it was a it's a it's a lot more to it as far as a record label promotion goes than you know than just putting it out. So anyway, they had to tap it down until they could release it and then have promotion make sure that it peaked at the same time in every every major city. But that didn't come from the promotions guys at the label. That came from a DJ just saying Yeah, they just started playing it. Yeah. And and what really determined that they were right was that the of the audience you know, started calling it in, you know. Were you an outlier? You said you were a loner, but were really all kids just just tuned into the radio all the time and really just devouring music? Yeah, I think so. Much more so. There wasn't the amount of distractions that there are now, you know, uh, all the electronic games and, the and you know, every cable television station you can think of, every, you know, it was, you know, you were kind of limited to, like three TV stations or networks, and there was not, you know, there was like in each town had two or three radio stations, local. Whatever was on the radio in the early 60s, I was already totally into it. And when the Beatles came out, that was what was on everybody's mind. You know, it was just just the Beatles, period. And then every street you went down, every neighborhood you went in, 
in Columbus, and I'm sure in most across the country, there'd be garage bands playing. You know, everybody everybody wanted to pick up a an instrument, be in a band, and I was one of those. And what'd you play? Uh, I played guitar. When'd you get your first band together? How old? Fourteen. You guys play any dates, or are you just staying in the garage, or like I was jamming with kids in junior high school, and my brother had left in a really terrible acoustic guitar laying around the house, and he was like seven and a half years to the day older than me, so we didn't hang out a whole lot together, but, you know, he'd had this guitar, and he really didn't, he didn't really learn how to play it or get into it very much. He left it around the house, and I think it was 65, could have been 66. Jensen Elementary School had a, a talent show, you know, so me and three other guys dressed up, put on beetle wigs, and I had a eight days a week, and I don't want to spoil the party single. And so I, I kind of was being Paul. My big thing was uh, I had that guitar, and I put their single on the record player standing next to me on the little cafeteria stage and played it. And and when and the little girls went crazy. I was like, this that's fun, you know. And then <laughs> yeah. I flipped it over when we played the other side, and I was stepping down the two steps off the stage and. Got three little girls back me into the Georgia flag. Play something. And I'm like, I can't. Come on, Joe, play something. I, I can't. Oh, yeah. I said, okay, tomorrow. Tomorrow. Went home and I, I picked out, a, I think it was the beginning to Kicks by Paul Rear and the Raiders. The little guitar intro. And that, that was what sealed the deal for me because it was nice. I was a ham. and It was nice getting attention, especially, you know, from little girls. That kind of sealed my fate. Summer going into the seventh grade for my birthday, my, my dad took me over to Phoenix City, Alabama, right across the Chattahoochee River from, from Columbus, and and we he knew a guy that had a pawn shop. My dad had a grocery store. Bought me a little Japanese import mirrored pit guard guitar and an amp with the on off, and that was that was the start of it. There was a guy that lived down this street from me, Glenn Settle, and Glenn had a band called the Columbus Shadows. There was a big band called The Shadows, so they were the Columbus Shadows. They had a horn section, and they were doing Motown and Stacks and all that kind of stuff. And and so I'd go down there and hang out with them and watch them practice. And Glenn showed me, a, you know, how to play up to the point of playing bar chords. And and that was pretty much the extent of my lessons. And one day he said, you know, you ought to start a band. I said, okay. That was it. You know, I started hanging out with a couple of guys and trying to play a little bit and and uh, that just kind of morphed into this this other group of guys they had a band that broke up and so we me and a couple of guys got together with a couple of guys from the other band and we created the band and that was in the summer of 69 and my brother came up with the name of it the first name was the octagon and we said no no that's that's a good name but and then he came up with sole proprietors so that's instead of s-o-l-e it was s-o-u-l yeah there you go yeah and so our first, uh, we were we practiced during that summer, and then I think it was September the sixth or the ninth. Dyslectic, I get it turned upside down there. But we uh, had our first job, played for free at the local Moose Lodge, and and that's where it started. And the JCs, J A Y C E E S, uh, would put on a a fundraiser nationally and, and locally in every city that had a JCs organization, and it would be a battle of the bands. And so my friend Glenn's band. Uh, the Shadows participated in the battle, battle of the Bands, and I think in '69 they won the Columbus Georgia Battle of Bands. So that was what I wanted to do. I said, "Okay, well, I've got three years 
before I either go to college or Vietnam. That was really kind of how everybody felt back then. So we got three years to win this thing. So we entered it, didn't place. We entered it again our junior year, came in second. Entered it our senior year, and we won, ended up winning first place in the nation. And so that prolonged the band's longevity. It did, it's just totally weird and coincidental, but our our keyboard player, Drew Carden, his uncle was a guy named Sonny Carden, or he went by Sonny or Hugh. And he was Conway Twitty's manager. Conway was a had been a, a big pop star in the late 50s, kind of an Elvis-like singer, who had flipped over and went country and became a huge country star. They had another guy in the band, Steve Lott, who had a third cousin whom he had never met, never did meet, who he said was a producer whatever that meant, we didn't know, in Nashville. And his name was Billy Sherrill. Those two guys were, it just was coincidental that we were all in the same age range and we were in the same band in the same town. And to to have people in the band that had the connections through their families like that was really odd, I thought. Although it really didn't mean that much to us because we were not into country, you know. So to us, it was kind of, eh, country, you know. We were... We were into all the pop and R&B stuff. But you knew who Conway Twitty was? Um, not really, no. Okay. We, we learned. And the reason that Conway became extremely important to us was that his best friend was Dick Clark. All of a sudden, Conway went from being what we considered at the time, and we were very wrong, but we were young, you know, you know 15, 16 years right. old. And, uh, you know, we kind of made you know fun of artists that had their hair slicked back like that, you know, and and, you know, country music and that kind of stuff is how we felt. But I ended up loving country music. Conway became uh, extremely important because he was, you know, before the age of cell phones and Internet, uh, he was definitely our connection to one of the biggest names in pop rock music, which, you know, was Dick Clark. So after we won the National Battle of the Bands, our keyboard player's father, who was our manager, Jack, told his brother, Sonny or Hugh, whatever you want to call him, about the boys winning the National Battle of the Bands and would Conway help us out? And so Conway at the time lived in Oklahoma City. So he said, well, yeah, if they come out here, uh, we'll cut a session with them. I'll just hang out with them. I'm not going to produce them, but I'll hang out with them when they come out here and then I'll get the tape to Dick Clark. And so after we won the Battle of the Bands in September or October, whatever, of 72, the following July, August of 73, we went to Oklahoma, met Conway, cut some original material that that I had I had written the music to. I was painfully shy. I wouldn't write lyrics because I didn't want to be teased, you know, because guys can tease the crap out of you at that age, you know. And and um, and you mentioned, Joe, you mentioned, were you kidding or are you dyslexic? Well, I kind of think I am. I often do things in reverse, you know. I'm not terribly dyslexic, but, you know, I, like in school, I could read a book or I could read a page and not know what I read, you know, when I got down to the bottom of it. And, and I had to train myself and make myself go back and read it line by line and, and then realize I missed it again. I had to go back and read it. I finally kind of got myself, really make myself focus really hard. But it was it was a it was a struggle, kind of, you know. So. Yeah, and you mentioned you inverted the six and the nine, which is <laughs> yeah. Yeah. people with those traits tend to also uh, be artistic. When Soul Proprietor won in 72, the JC Battle of the Bands, were you guys doing covers or were you doing originals? I instinctively felt that if you didn't do original material, you'd never 
you didn't have a chance of going any further than being a, a cover band. I always just knew that we had to do original material if we ever planned on being more than a playing the college, the frat circuit, you know, frat parties and all that, clubs. And so I had started, like I said, I would not, I really was shy about opening up and writing lyrics because I, you know, you know, I didn't want to be, oh, that's, you're, that's so sissy or syrupy or whatever. So then we had, I had a singer in the band that was totally cool with writing lyrics, didn't have any qualms about, about doing it. And he was a singer and I was not. So I'd make up the music and he'd put the lyrics to it. One of the things in the Battle of the Bands and the National Battle of the Bands was that they rated you on showmanship and, of course, your musical talent, but also originality, you know, and original material. And I think that we were the only band that played original original song at the Battle of Bands, and that's probably what won it for us, actually. We wrote a handful of songs, and there, and there was one song I wrote, like, half the lyrics, because it just fell out. You know, I couldn't stop it. And and so I got I got Jimmy, the singer, to, uh, to write the second half so that if there was any... Uh, criticism i could drag him down with me you know and uh so he he wrote the first the second half i wrote the first half of the lyrics and i wrote all the music and and so anyway we went out to oklahoma and conway was there he was great and en- ended up being a terrific friend and, and for years afterwards and uh we cut the tape he sent it to conway i mean he sent it to uh to uh, to dick clark and i think it, it took a few months for dick to get back with us maybe five or six months actually he was not thoroughly impressed at all. Main comment that he had, and I actually I just looked at his letter again yesterday because of this book I'm doing. It was, um, you know, better than average band, but there's already a Chicago and Tower Power. And by that, you know, that's kind of what we were had morphed into at that time. Do you have a horn section then? You, you yeah, had- we had, yeah, we had a three-piece horn section. Oh, that's that's cool. Yeah, the Chicago was who we wanted to be. Chicago and, as the still jazzy like Chicago Transit Authority kind of thing. Joe Chicago with his, Transit was the first album, but then everything after that was just Chicago. Yeah, but they, you know, they in that those early tracks were pretty jazzy, kind of out there. Those long yeah. jams, right before before they yeah, became but, just sweet spot of pop. That was what the point of contention with them in the record label. They had to they had to edit it down. Yeah, you know, and they didn't want to do that. And right. Danny Seraph and the drummer is a very close friend of mine now, and. And also, if you've watched the show, um, you know, you probably saw my interview with, with Danny and then uh, James Panko. Great musicians. And that's not even the word. I mean, both of them. But, you know, Panko is, he's, he's just, he's so, he's off the chart, so talented. And not, not only as a ranger, but as a song, he wrote some of their best songs, you know, as a songwriter. Matter of fact, he and Robert Lamb, a couple of, three or four years ago, gotten inducted into the National, you know, in New York, the Songwriters Hall of Fame. I stumbled into Joe some old footage from their Caribou sessions. Yeah, they're here in Colorado and just playing out these just these jams that they did out in this beautiful meadow. I bought some stuff from the Caribou for the museum. I bought I bought the piano Chicago and everybody else used anybody that stayed in what they call the Ure cabin, that named after Chief Ure. All the bigger artists, from my understanding, would stay in that cabin. They had a piano in there that, that they would use. Matter of fact, Elton used it to write. Elton did three. Uh, albums out there he put the music to to bernie's lyrics on don't let the sun go down on me on this piano that i purchased it Killer. So it was really cool because panko was going through this museum with me and we and we stopped by this piano you know and i'm sure he did arrangements and stuff there on it as well and he said you know uh elton loved to loved our horn section and matter of fact he asked me if i would put the horns on the song for him so i wrote the arrangement and then 
when the producer, Chicago horn section was was a trombone, saxophone, trumpet. He wanted more of a um, tower power, more brassy horns as he was hearing it for this song. And so Panko said, that's that's cool. You know, here's the music, you know, just, you know, put whoever you want to on it. He wrote the horns to Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me. And he said, but they left him off the album. They didn't give him credit for it. Oh man, for that, but that, but that, but that, Yeah, I mean, it sounds like Chicago. Yeah, it? yeah. All right, so Dick Clark not really blown away, thinking you know there there's a lot of talent out there. You guys are kind of middle of the well, pack. Like he said, he said, right? earlier, he said, look, you know, I've you know I've 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 been wrong before. Well, he passed on the Beatles, so I guess he had been wrong right. before. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> right. But but to be totally honest, we we were not. We really weren't ready yet i don't think either i've used the example of we could have been like a buckingham's perhaps had we had i was not a good enough songwriter at the time honestly you know i can tell you now by listening to what i wrote then that i was not good enough you know i was just getting into it and it, it takes you know unless you're just like elton john or somebody or or james panko uh, it, it, you know I, I was not i had to work at it i had i loved it so much that i worked at it really hard to get where I got. And it did seem to me that, you know, it was a lot easier for some people to pull it off than, than it was me. But but my love of the music was what drove me to to work the extra time and hours to, to get to where I could spend my life in music in some shape, form, or fashion. We waited to hear back from Dick Clark, and, and that was kind of a, okay, well, he didn't say, you know, break up, you know, so... And we weren't going to break up anyway, you know. So we, you know, we we had continued to. That would be harsh. I think you guys are so bad. You should just break up. (laughs) That would be harsh. Yeah. I mean, of course, they told Elvis to go back to driving the truck. You know, more geniuses. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So anyway, we it didn't matter. We loved playing anyway, so it didn't really matter what anybody said. You know. Okay. Well, we need to write some better songs. So uh, we kept playing. You know, had a few membership changes in the band. And a couple of years later, Conway had moved to, to to Nashville. Even though he had had probably at that time, you know, 20 number one records, he said, you know, if you're going to be in the business, you got to go to Nashville. That was the only reason I came to Nashville. So we went up to, to Atlanta, which is 100 miles above Columbus, and we cut a demo tape in 75, 1975, called Conway and had a meeting with him. And another band, another guy in the band had set us up a meeting with a a guy, an engineer, I think his name Jerry Masters, I believe, engineer Muscle Shell Sound. So I borrowed some money from my folks, and we we did the session in Atlanta, and borrowed enough money to for me and the drummer and the lead singer to to drive up to see Conway in Nashville with the tape and see if he'd you know send it to 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 Dick Clark again or whoever, and then we were going to swing back by and stop off at Muscle Shoals and not have to spend the night because we didn't have enough money to meet Jerry at Muscle Shoals Sound. And then we were going to coast back into Columbus on on gas fumes, you know. And so we got up there, and, and Conway had an emergency and couldn't see us. I called my mother. She says, well, look up Dick Chet Atkins. He helps young people. I mean, she was right. You know, he had a—I didn't know that, you know. But So I said, okay. I said, well, I have no idea how to contact Chet Atkins. She says, well, call the Chamber of Commerce. So I called the Chamber of Commerce, and somehow or another, they said, well, he works at RCA. So I called over there and, and had set up an appointment with somebody. And so I found where Music Row was. We were riding down 16th Avenue looking for all the big, you know, record labels. And it was just little bitty houses. You know, that was Nashville. That was Music Row. It was little bitty 
houses, and that's where everything happened. The publishing companies and even studios were in these houses. I finally got down the road to where there was a couple of established record labels that had some decent-sized buildings that looked like kind of what I thought it might look like. And there was Capitol, and then there was Columbia, CBS. And so I'd looked at so many Chicago and Blood, Sweat, and Tear albums, Tears albums, that I, I knew it was Columbia, CBS Records they were on. So I'm like, whoa, this is where Chicago is. You know, it's pulled in, and I pushed the door open. There was a guy sitting there on the, in the right at the front door reading a Billboard magazine, sitting in the lounge on the sofas, you know, waiting to see someone, I assumed. And being from Georgia, you know, I said, hey, how you doing? He kind of nodded, and I walked about four more steps up to the to the secretary's desk. Her name was Norma Jean, ended up being a good friend, uh, was the secretary. And I said, hey, I need somebody to listen to this tape. So that's when I got the standard, oh, here's the card, you know, and it says, leave it here, and if we like it, we'll get back with you. And in six weeks, and if we don't, we'll keep the tape. And I said, well, I can't leave it. You know, it's the only copy we got, actually, which was also a brilliant move for us to go up there with one copy. I said, okay, well, it's too good to leave anyway. So I turned around, I'm, you know, walking out, and I had the door pulled open about two feet, heading back to the car. The drummer and the lead singer were behind me, and one of them said, hey, what was Steve Lott's cousin who lives up here who's a record producer? And one of the guys said, I think his name was Billy Sherrill. The guy sitting on the couch laid the billboard in his lap, and he looked at me and said, I'm Billy Sherrill. Come on. Come on. I I swear to God. Still, it was Steve's third cousin to me. I didn't know who George Jones or Tammy Wynette or Charlie Rich were, or especially that he had produced them and wrote Stand By Your Man and The Most Beautiful Girl in the World. And I said, hey, man, would you listen to this tape? You know, And I let go of the door and shut, and and he he goes, "Um, is this what's happening? And I went, yeah. He he heard us talking about Lot. He goes, he asked us about about how they were doing this, you know, because he remembered that name, knew knew who we were talking about, and he just jumped up and and we just followed him upstairs to his office, and that's when I kind of got an inkling that he was somebody because there were gold and platinum rack records covering the walls, stacked up on the floor, coming out five to six deep, just all around the floor and on the carpet, and I didn't recognize the names, but I, okay, well. He's somebody. A week later, we're recording at Columbia Studio A. Uh, we're the same place that Dylan recorded Lay Lady Lay and all this, all this stuff, you know. So, um, how'd the session go? We play, you know, he listened to the tape and he said, um, So, why don't we do a spec session? I'm like, You know, I'm totally an idiot. I don't know. I said, What's, what's that? He goes, Well, that's, we pay for the tape. And if we like it, we have right of first refusal. What's that mean? I, he said, Well, if, if, if we pay for the session and we like you, we have the right to sign you before anybody else. If we don't sign you, you've got a free tape to take to take and shop to another label. And I said, okay, we'll do that. Yeah, just, you know, I mean, I, was, I had no idea what was getting laid at my feet, you know. Uh, by the way, can I keep a tape? And I went, no. That's all we got. And, <laughs> and, so and, and he goes, well, and he kind of chuckled. You know, I look back on it years later and I remember that conversation. And I think that the fact that I, I'm probably the only person that ever refused to give Billy Sherrill a copy of their tape. And he realized that, that I wasn't being a jerk. I was just so... So naive. Honestly naive. Yeah. And, and I remember him chuckling and laughing. And I, <laughs> and I was like, um, yeah, he goes, why not? I said, well, you know, the, the band took a vote and and people rip you off. He goes, oh, really? And he started laughing. All that come back to me later, you know, yeah. and uh, 
So anyway, he goes, okay, well, you know, you want to take a tour of the studio? And so he gave us a tour of the Quonset Hut Studio B, which was where it all started at on Music Row. Owen Bradley had built this studio in the basement of this house that no longer was where we were standing. It had been torn down, but he built this Quonset Hut, Army Surplus Quonset Hut behind it. The basement of the house is where they cut Bebop Palula. And they cut the floor, the ceiling out of the basement so that it went up into the first floor and gave it some depth for sound. When they built the Quonset Hut, they had built it to do some country square dance TV-like shows. And they weren't really making any money on it, but they realized it sounded better than the, the basement. So they moved the recordings up into the Quonset Hut. And that's where, you know, Blue Velvet and all these great records were cut up there. And so CBS Records comes in in 62 and buys the house in the Quonset Hut from Owen. Tears the house down and builds the building that we're standing in around the Quonset Hut and left the Quonset Hut sitting there. And then adjacent to the Quonset Hut, they built a New York-style Studio A. So the Quonset Hut then became known as CBS B. And the big studio that we recorded in was was modeled after the New York studios, even even built it on rubber pads like they did in New York because of the of the subway underneath them. Right for the isolation. Which, which yeah. we, but we didn't have any subway, but they still built it the same way. <laughs> well, you still get that. You get that isolation, but yeah. Well, you could, yeah. you could hear if you if you were standing in the studio, you could you could hear feel your heart beating. It was just it was incredible, but. We, we, we have three days in the studio. We come back the following week. We still went by Muscle Shoals, though. We stopped off by Muscle Shoals Sound. And and you were running on, on gasoline vapors, right? I mean, we, you, were, we, we you had not, nothing. We had nothing. We got, you know, we did, I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit. We had enough to, to get home. We didn't have enough to eat or to get a hotel room. We had enough to get home. And that's exactly what happened. And luckily, because Jerry passed on us in, a, in Muscle Shoals, and um, is. Tom Petty says you got to have rhino skin to be in in this world, you know. And we had to have mighty thick skin to keep going. If you and if you don't, you might as well just forget it because you're going to get turned down a whole lot more as a songwriter and as an artist than you are going to hear the word yes, you know. So we're a bit of kindred spirits. I actually got signed to Columbia. And oh really? Yeah, back in '88. Now lifetimes ago. I had the same experience that you did when I, I mean, I grew up looking at that Columbia, that CBS label spinning, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. right? We were at the Palladium that had a, a, the record release party. And when they opened that box, Joe, and on the spine, they pulled them out. And on the spine, it said Columbia. And then they pull it out of the sleeve. And I thought, man, this is it. That's that's Columbia Records on the mm-hmm. center of that vinyl. I never, I never got it with a band. I got the acetates that they made from from our sessions there, and I did get to experience that later as a producer and a writer. You know, having my name on the Columbia Columbia Records and stuff. Of course, looking back, everything works out. I think for the best. You know, had we weren't, we still weren't ready. You know, and and of course, every band's about one word away from breaking up anyway. <laughs> You know, ain't that the truth? Steve Popovich, who was handling Chicago Bliss, Went and Tears and promotion stuff in New York, came down and he listened. He kind of passed on it. We we ended up being great friends as well. It took about a year for that to finally fizzle out because uh, 
Billy said, okay, I'm going to send this out to Al Gallico. And Al was a, a great publisher. And Al pu- published House of the Rising Sun and Tell Her No When She's Not There by the Zombies. And he pr- published The Pretenders. And uh, But he also probably Stand By Your Man. And most anyway, he and Billy, he had, helped Billy get started, Billy Sherrill get started and get his job at CBS in, in its infancy there in Nashville. And Al was... I had lived in Beverly Hills, had office in L.A. and New York and Nashville. And it took about a year for it just to kind of we finally realized it wasn't going to happen. So I had put in my decade or so, you know, trying to, to be a member in the band. And the original band that we had put together, you know, there, we'd had numbers of membership changes. And it had just kind of deteriorated to the point to where I really just never wanted to be in a band again. You know, it was just a, um, I, I did that. It was difficult getting eight people, as Billy used to put it, it's like, pushing spaghetti or, you know, or herding cats, you know, it's just, it was just too hard to get everybody focused and at least was where I was focused at. And I was always focused on commercial original material. My friend's dad had a good expression, Joe, pushing piss uphill with a rake. Uh, that was a, yeah. that was another yeah. good one. Joe, yeah. your parents were supportive of it. Were there musicians in your family? No. I mean, other than your brother having that guitar that he didn't really learn how to play and he left for you. Your, why were your parents so, you, did you, your dad had a supermarket? Is that what you said? Yeah, yeah, had a little grocery store. Grocery store? Uh-huh. And was mom working? Was your mom working? Well, mom, when I was young, you know, she'd worked at the bank as a teller and stuff like that. But she was a housewife and a mother, you know, so. But they were, support, um, they were supportive of you doing this, it sounds like, no? Oh, yeah. I mean, they, they were, I had, I had. I had the best, you know. Yeah. I get it. You don't do it alone. No. Um, I mean, they didn't just like, you know, every time I needed a guitar or something, you know, it was, you know, I had to work. You know, we were lower middle class financially, I guess you'd say. Whatever I wanted to do, you know, they they were like, well, you know, you can do whatever you want to do, you know. So I don't think they were really thrilled that I was going to be playing nightclubs. I mean, they knew more than I did about what, what you'd run into, I think. Even though they were not partiers or, you know, drinkers or anything like that, um, they knew that you're going you're to run into some all kinds of people and uh, in that kind of lifestyle, and I did. So when the band finally kind of petered out, I got a job working with uh, MR kids, patients in in a hospital in Columbus that just opened up. And uh, they wouldn't be in a state institution. They wouldn't pay you overtime. But if you work double shifts, you could get a day off, uh, unpaid day off during the week. For what I wanted to do, that was great. So when people were always calling out, so I would work a double shift on the ward. And, and of course, at night, nothing was happening. So that was a great time for me to write songs. I would work double shifts because Nashville on the weekends was worthless to me because I had to be in town so I could hit, you know, go by CBS and hang out and see Billy and or go see Conway. And on the weekends, that was there was nothing going on. You know, I would take these days off in the week and make my monthly trip, sometimes two times a month. Uh, to Nashville, so it worked out great because I could, I could write songs when I did the double shifts at night because didn't know nobody needed attending, you know, and they didn't mind if I did. And then I could take off when I needed to during the week. Uh, Billy and I hit it. Billy Sherrill and I hit it off. I think he automatically liked me, and 
the fact that I didn't know who he was when I met him, I didn't throw up on him and, and stutter, you know. He was funny and, and had a great sense of humor, very dry. And um, we hit it off. And I, and, and I don't know, evidently he liked me too. When I walked in or he wouldn't have said, hi, I'm Billy Sherrill, you know. So he ended up kind of like being my second dad. I, I was, Unfortunately, I was a pallbearer at his funeral back in 2015. So we remained close the whole time. You know, matter of fact, his wife Charlene told me that, you know, I was the son he never had. Anyway, I would come up and Billy would critique my songs and go, Joe, you wouldn't say that to your girlfriend or wife, would you? I'm like, yeah. He goes, no, you wouldn't. You know, use real words. When you write a song, think about pulling into SO, this little dated SO service station. Write for the guy pumping the gas and the guy that owns the corporation. No hidden meanings. You know, th- now this was for country music, okay? Pop. Lyrically, is a whole different ballgame. He said, um, you want to m- almost embarrass somebody from listening to your song like they're eavesdropping. If you can make it that real to where somebody feels like they're really on, in on a personal conversation between you and your wife or girlfriend or spouse, whatever, that's how real you want it to be. You don't just don't make it just rhyme just to make it rhyme, you know, make it and make every line take you to another place. Don't in one line say, I love you so much. And the second line saying, I love you that that much. You know what I mean? You have to take it a step further. Don't just repeat the same thing using different words. Yeah, I mean, you've only got three minutes. Every word, I mean, and I mean every word. I can't tell you how much I sweated bullets over the and it and, you know, just to make sure that it made the most sense in the word, you know, in the sentence, you know. Of course, Billy was voted the BMI songwriter of the century that gives you an idea of how what a great songwriter he was and how i felt like it was almost like having einstein for a a junior high school science teacher you know i mean it was it was incredible to have billy and then and then i'd go from billy i'd go out to see conway and conway would would review the songs you know so and conway had more number one records than any other artist for for decades there you know so between the two, you'd think I would have done really well. You were gifted with these two extraordinary mentors. They shaped you, and if the if the trajectory was not you, Joe Rockstar or Joe Country Star, it's well, I it, can't sing. That was that was what I'm like when I when I quit the band. I'm like, well, I can't sing, but I want to be in music. And I remember driving home from Raleigh, North Carolina, or wherever I was from that last gig, and I had my my Marshall and my Les Paul in the back seat. And I'm like, what am I going to do? You know, and well, dumbass, you know, Billy Sherrill, you know, Conway Twitty, start writing country songs. And so when I got home, I changed, you know, back then you could punch in the buttons on your radio, you know, so you didn't have to spin the dial to find the station. Preset, right. So So I preset it to the country stations that were available. Because, I, you know, I had to go cold turkey, you know. I missed the Rumors album, okay? I mean, I, I was not listening to the radio when that was happening, believe it or not. Ru- Fle- how- rumors, Fleetwood Mac Rumors. Right, yeah. S- 78? 77, 78. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. I was, that's, that's when I was, I had to learn who was who in country music. I didn't know that Charlie Pride was black. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't I, didn't I don't know. think you're the only one, yeah, yeah. But, but I mean, I didn't know what songs. I'd go in and tell Billy. I said, "Man, I love that new duet with uh, 
with Tammy and George. Which one is that? I said, you know, Southern California. Oh, man, that's two years old. Oh, okay, sorry. You know, I didn't know. You know, so I had to, it was like being dropped off on another planet. Like somebody coming here from Mars and never knowing who the Beatles or or who the Stones or, or when you know, had to I had to learn. Was there music in your house other than the transistor radio where you were playing top forty radio? Dad, Joe was Dad, Dad listened to WRBL, which is what? What are they? What were they playing? In the middle of the road. I, I spent about a year driving back and forth to Nashville once or twice a month. In May of seventy uh, eight, uh, I moved to Nashville and. Um, I had saved about $900, which I thought was enough to last me forever. But Nashville, as it is now, was a boom town at the time. My mother even told me she saw it in National Geographic. You know, there was not enough house. And I'm like, Mom, come on. I got up here, and she was right again. So I spent all my money on hotels, and I said, okay, look, are you going to do this, or are you going to call home to Mommy and Daddy and get some money? And I'm like, I can't. If I do that, I'm never going to respect myself. If I'm going to do this, I'm going to have to dig in and do it. So I found an apartment on Music Row, right right off Music Row, uh, furnished for $135 a month. It was at the top of this building. I stepped over a wino lady every night, putting her cigarettes out on the wood stairs. I'm like, okay, I'm not, I can't go to sleep. She'll burn the building down. So I'd stay awake all night. The hot water came out rusted and about the size of a pencil. It was, no, it was, but it was my, it was my place. Luxury accommodations. Yeah, and so I got a job at McDonald's. Shaved my beard. Cut your hair. Um, didn't have to cut my hair, but um, had to shave the beard to work there. I worked there about two weeks, and then Johnny Paycheck cut my first song. So I gave him a two-week notice, and I didn't know it was going to be nine months before I got a check. And, and McDonald's <laughs> served all my purposes because it paid my rent, and it and I could eat there three times a day while I was there. That would have killed you, Joe. We would not be having this conversation now if you were eating McDonald's three times a day. That would not be good. Oh, I, I, I liked it. Yeah, I mean, I, I left there with high respect for McDonald's, but uh, but my lower back was killing me for leaning <laughs> over the grill. <laughs> uh huh. And then if you had if you carried that discipline of managing pennies into any business, you'd be in great shape. Yeah, and that's why they that's why they are who they are. You get this apartment, you're barely scraping by. Johnny Paycheck, which is a miracle. That who was shopping your music at this time? That that Nobody. Johnny. So no, how does Johnny I, Paycheck get your tune? Well, Bonnie, Johnny was just coming off of the biggest record in country music. It was called Take This Job and Shove. Back then, you know, you, if you made the CBS Evening News, that was, you know, you'd see Don McLean on there talking about American Pie. And here's Johnny Paycheck, you know, with, I mean, that's how big the song was. They made a movie out of it. Yeah, it was tremendous. My first cut is on the follow-up album, To Shove It. I didn't have a co-writer. You know, I played him the song, and it's called Look What the Dog Drug In. It was kind of a funny song about a guy getting caught cheap. Look what the dog drug is. Johnny was an outlaw. You know, he was... Uh, he was a bad boy. He was a bad boy, and he really was. But he was a great guy when he wasn't drinking. How do you get that? How, how did that happen? I had spent about a year learning how to write. So I spent a year, you know, coming back and forth once. We, you know, I had two pretty good teachers, you know. And you wrote the music and lyrics? Yeah. Billy played it to Johnny. Johnny loved it. When I changed my radio stations over to, to country, I also changed the nightclubs that I would attend to country. And there was only one in Columbus that I would. And there was a band they had playing there that would always pack the place out. They'd be there for two weeks or whatever. You couldn't get in. I mean, it was a big deal to be able to get in. And they were called the Nashville Impact. And it was a really good band. They were a cover band, but they also had written some original material. So 
like I said, I don't sing. During one of their breaks one night, I, the uh, steel guitar player, really nice guy, and I was talking to him, and I told him that, you know, I was trying to be a songwriter, and I was going back and forth to Nashville, and maybe I could run this by you, see what you think of this. If uh, I got a friend, and I, again, I had no idea that everybody in the business knew who Billy was. I really didn't know that. I said, I got a friend that's a record producer in Nashville. His name's Billy Sherrill. If Michael, your singer, would go down to the little local studio with me on a Sunday or Saturday afternoon, sing about three or four songs for me that I wrote, if you've got any original material, I'll be happy to take it and play it to Billy for you. Michael, the singer, came over and he said, so you know Billy Sherrill? I went, yeah. He goes, hey, well, Elvis is coming to my birthday party, too. The steel player finally said, look, what if he does know Billy? He told me this later. So the singer, he agreed to sing the songs for me. So we went over and sang them. So I go up and I play Billy my, my new um, batch of songs. Billy was like, no, 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 no. So, you know, I was used to getting turned down, but I was learning. And I said, hey, Billy, would you do me a favor and keep me from being a liar? And he said, yeah, what? Would you listen to this? He said, yeah. So they had made a record. So I gave him the record and he played it. Unlike my stuff, he listened to it all the way through. When he got to the end of it, he goes, yeah, that's pretty good. I think I'll cut that on Johnny Paycheck. I said, really? He goes, yeah. I said, hey, Billy's going to cut your song on Paycheck. This was like in February. A couple, three months later, I'm back up playing Billy some more songs. And he goes, oh, hey, by the way, tell your buddies that I cut their song on Joe Stampley. Well, well Joe was a big artist back then, too. The song was called If You Got Ten Minutes, Let's Fall in Love. It was a hit. It became a top 10 record. That did me more good than anything because that took the music business from being Jack and the Beanstalk in, in this mystical, magical world that you have to sell your soul to the devil to get into to, to realistically saying it's a business. And I, and I realized I didn't have to do anything but just keep doing what I was doing. When I would drive down the road and hear if you got 10 minutes to fall in love, when I'd walk into a nightclub and they playing on the jukebox, I was like, I did that. I did everything but write it. And it just really gave me the, I had, you know, you have to believe. If you don't believe, you're screwed. From that moment on, I believed really hard that all I got to do is just write it and it'll happen. There's, it's this, this, uh, having the key to some secret room to be able to get into this business was gone. I mean, it was still a mystical, magical world to be in, but I knew how to get in it. I knew then the only thing that was holding me back was me. If I wrote the song and I put it in Billy's hand or Conway's hand or whoever, that it could happen. On top of that, they, they started sending me checks. They sent me 10% of what they made, which was not part of the deal. And I told them, they said, no, we want to, you know, so... That was also the first money I made from songwriting that I didn't write. <laughs> you had this personal realization and then now this self-assuredness, which is priceless. And then these guys actually did in the music business, did the right thing and kicked you money. That's crazy. Well, they, they, they did pass the right thing because really I felt guilty because and I told them, I said, don't you don't have to do this. You know, um, that was not part of the deal. The deal was for you to sing the song for me. And I, I did my part. You did your part. And they were like, no, we, we want we want to do this, you know, and we talked about it. And so, and I will say that it came in really handy. It just goes to show you, if you do the right thing and you keep your word, you know, good things can come back to you. When you got the pay, Johnny Paycheck gig, you said you, you quit McDonald's. Well, that was later. I'm, 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 I, jumped, I jumped ahead of myself or jumped back here. Um, the, this thing with the National Impact happened before 
I moved up here. Oh, okay. This this happened earlier in the year. Within two months after of being here, then then I was the one that got the Johnny paycheck cut. You know, it wasn't a single, which is a difference in day, in day and night as far as as money goes. You know, that was my first cut. After this success is what? Do you continue writing? Do you? Yeah, of course. I mean, that was it. That okay. was 24-7, cup of pencil and pad and a tape recorder by my bed, you know, because so even if I woke up from something, I could scribble it down and hopefully read it. can't think of a, a catchy phrase about open owning a music museum. I want to own a music museum. How do you get no, that? How no, do you I get listen, there? Well, I submerged myself into to country music and I listened to what Billy and Conway said. I mean, I wrote all kinds of songs. There was a magazine called Country Song Roundup magazine and it would print lyrics to all the to past hits and present hits. And that way you could look at the at a at a page in this country song roundup and you could read the lyric without hearing a ma- a production or a singer. And it made it a lot more real. When you're listening to a phenomenal production with the best musicians and the orchestra, orchestra and Kenny Rogers or whoever's singing it, you know, it's over, almost overwhelming to think that I could ever write anything like that. But when you just look at it, words, you know, like number of lines in a verse, number of words in a line, what words are they using? You know, what are they writing about? I don't want to make it unromantic, but you just kind of, it's kind of a, an equation. Like, right, you know, a little you, formula, you know, yeah. Yeah, you know, so you have verse, chorus, verse, bridge, chorus. And there's other ways to write them too, you know. Stand by your man was verse, verse, and then chorus, chorus. You know, so it's just trial and error. You know, you just keep doing it, you know. So, I, I mean, I was I was determined. I mean, it didn't it didn't just happen. I had to work really hard at it. I, like I said, I, I was it was something that I really made happen. I mean, I forced it to happen because I wanted it to happen, and I didn't want to do anything else. And I was fortunate enough that I could put words together even as a kid, you know, to make poetry and stuff like that. So once I got here, I knew Nashville was where I, where I needed to be. I had a great time having that second run as a band. I met my wife. We got married. I went back to writing full-time, uh, and I worked for CBS and well, Billy hired me to, to work over there in A and R, which allowed me, which got me free studio time. So I started producing and 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 of course writing all the time. And did you have and, any uh, success as an A and R exec? Well, I just I would just like listen to all the songs that came in from everywhere. It's almost impossible. It, you know, it's like Conway moving here. If people that really were going to go after it moved here, you were, the odds of finding something worthwhile in the mail is nil. I mean, because People, you know, everybody writes three or four songs. My grandmother said this is as good as anything she's ever heard. And, of course, it sucks, you know. And uh, So even though there was no housing, the reality was you needed to be in town, physically there. And, of course, listening to the worst of the worst songs coming in was the best thing for me as well. Because if, if I started writing anything that sounded anything like what I was hearing coming in on the mail, I'd th- I throw it away. You know, the music business feasts and famine. You know, I got a lot of cuts. I got a whole lot of cuts. I can't even remember them all, but, you know, but Conway, Tammy, George, B.J. Thomas, Randy Travis, Ricky Van Shelton, Johnny Paycheck. You got placed on major records. Yes, lots of them. Again, the difference between having a single and an album cut is difference in day and night financially. Through a series of events, it finally I was like, okay, you know, I got a kid coming. I really need to do something that's, evidently more than I'm able to control my career as a songwriter. So I opened up a guitar shop. That turned into a, a chain of guitar shops, three or four 
And of course, as soon as I open up the guitar shop, I have a number one record. And so I can't go back to town to smooth and hang out and take advantage of that because I've got a business I have to run too. What was the number but one record? It was called Somebody Lied by Ricky Van Shelton. Conway had cut it first, but didn't release it as a single. And that was really the straw that broke the camel's back for me because I knew it was a hit. And so I said, okay, I'm going to open up a guitar shop. And then as soon as I do, a couple years later, Van Shelton cuts it. It's his first number one. And Hello. and then um, yeah. I have another number two on him. And then Randy Travis, I have the title cut to his third album. And, and just, it just Holy cow! It's beautiful. Yeah. And what's the name yeah. of the what's the name of the guitar shop? Is it? Do you still have it, Joe? No, it was called Chambers Guitars. I had I had one in Nashville, Franklin, uh, Murfreesboro, and Bowling Green, Kentucky. And of course, I did a lot of vintage guitars and stuff like that. And I met people, and just like anything else in my life, I met people that opened up doors. And uh, so now I'm hanging out with the Rolling Stones and the Crosby, and Nash, uh, not because of my being a talented songwriter or anything, but just because I'm dealing in vintage guitars. Was the store a must-stop when, when bands rolled through town? Was it one of those places? Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, you know, uh, Alan Rogan ended up being a really good friend, and and uh, Alan calls me one day, and, hey, can you come back and pick me and Joe Walsh up? He wants to see your guitar shop, you know, so, I mean, stuff like that. Building the guitar shops, being a songwriter, having a connection to pop artists, rock artists, is what gave me the confidence to be able to to buy a 30,000-square-foot building and think that I could open the Musicians Hall of Fame. And that's just plain and simple how it happened. I just felt that uh, people who really love music, you know, I've used this often, you know, if I found out that that um, that it wasn't Jimi Hendrix who I was listening to on the record, my first question would be, who is it and where is he or she or whoever? Um, a lot of people found out, you know, just like I did, you know, that the... A lot of the bands that they were watching on TV were not necessarily the bands they were listening to on the records. It interested me. I hoped that it might interest other people. And I thought, you know what, it would be great, too, for these people who who didn't get their, their name in the lights. A lot of times they didn't care because they were happy doing what they were doing anyway. But anyway, it, it turns out that a lot of people do care. And that's why we've gotten the views that we've, we've gotten. I think we've gotten about 12, almost 12 and a half million views and a little over a year. And now, finally, we come full circle. The museum able to, again, reopen, and and hopefully more people will have the chance to actually walk in the doors. But the next best thing, and another way to experience it, is through this celebration of this incredible archive, Joe, that you have. And, I mean, I got hooked on the As soon as I watched that, first, the first thing I watched was you and Hal Blaine. And oh, yeah. I was just going down the rabbit hole on the wrecking crew. If anybody loves anything about music, I was talking to friends the other day. They had no, they, no idea, no idea. They said, oh yeah, the beach, the beach boys records. Yeah. They didn't, they didn't play. Not on like God only knows and good vibrations. I mean, that, I think they did the first album or two. And I think that Carl played a little 12 string, you know, along with the wrecking crew guys, but I don't even think that Brian played. No. And Hal tells stories where Brian just, I mean, you had that built that studio at the house, and I want Hal. Yeah. And the band had to settle for that. It was going to be the Wrecking Crew laying down those tracks. So, and I mean, they're, you know, just how many of those songs, how many of those songs that those guys are on. But it's your celebration of music and musicians and musicianship and the world around it through your eyes. And that is a unique story because of everything you just shared with us, Joe, that you came up 
as a working songwriter, as a working musician, and that gives you a different sensibility. That is a unique point of view because you've been there. You've done it. You were in it. Pretty cool. The Monkees sang on their records, but used the same group of studio musicians as the Beach Boys on their most famous recordings. These same players recorded with Frank and Nancy Sinatra, Dean Martin, Elvis Presley, Simon and Garfunkel. The list is truly endless. The Musicians Hall of Fame not only recognizes the stars who are well known to the public, but the musicians who played on so many hit records as studio players. From the time those schoolgirls backed him into the Georgia State flag, to his first record with Johnny Paycheck, to inducting Garth Brooks into the Musicians Hall of Fame, Joe Chambers' journey is still one filled with music and endless possibilities. You just never know what's going to be put in front of you. You can learn more about the museum at musicianshalloffame.com. Thanks for hanging with Joe and myself. Hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And I hope you'll join me again with new episodes dropping every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Mountain Time. Until then, stay safe. And remember, you'll find no bed of roses wherever you find find podcasts and now on youtube at no bit of roses podcast thanks see you soon bye